Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. If you would, go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians will be in chapter 6, and this particular sermon is probably going to be, uh, well, it is going to be different from what I usually do because it's actually going to be broken into two parts. And the reason that it's going to be broken into two parts is that um, when doing this sermon on Ephesians and on the way the nature of the church and the way that the Christians who are the, the tissues and the organs that make up the body of Christ function together, we come to this passage that talks about the full armor of God. You cannot preach the full armor of God in one single sermon. Two sermons will not do it justice. Several commentaries have been written about this subject, one from a Presbyterian minister who... Uh, I unfortunately had to read, it came in two volumes because the first 360 page volume that he wrote apparently wasn't good enough so he wrote a second 360 page volume to make up for what he wasn't able to put in the first. So there's a lot to this, but it's an extremely important component of us because a church is only as strong as its members. A church is only as strong or as good and good hearted as her membership. That's one of the gifts that God gives us as we come together as the body of Christ. People, none of us are perfect. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For there are none righteous, no, not one. But God does not call us to live in shame. He doesn't call us to abandon the knowledge that we are made in His image. Or to become paralyzed because we're not good enough. Because God himself makes us good enough. He who has begun a good work in you, the scripture tells us, he will draw it to completion. The full armor of God is Paul's way of telling people that yes, we need to live an upright life. We need to live as close to Christ's example as we can. And while we may falter along the way, it is God himself who will provide us with the equipment, spiritually speaking, necessary to be able to live a victorious life in Christ. So he, as, as our covenantal father, as the person who provided our sacrifice in the first place, he also gives us the tools and the knowledge necessary to be a living reflection of his love in this world. And if we are the more reliant that we become upon him, and the less that we become in our own Self-grandization, if that's even a word. If the more that we humble ourselves before God and the less that we take pride on ourselves worshiping ourselves, the closer we come to resembling our Savior. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6 with verse 10. So please turn there now in your copy of God's Word. And when you get there, say Amen. Ephesians 6.10, please pay attention to the underlines and the highlights, and please be ready to mark these in your own passages or in the flyleaf of your Bible. 
I want you to note that he is starting this part of his letter with the words, finally. This is the last instruction that he's giving to this church, which means it's also the more important. Harbor these things above all in your heart. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not ours, not our magnificence, not our strength, not our wisdom, but focus on whose? His. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Notice he's not calling us to be defensive. He's calling us to be what? Offensive. Take your stand. Church, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, nor against the rulers. Uh, Excuse me. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, when the day of temptation, when you get locked into the devil's crosshairs, you may be able to what? To stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. Paul is going out of his way. To, to let you know that you are a soldier in this fight. You are not the pawn, you are the prize. You are the chess pieces in motion, and every time you are captured, it's the devil trying to sneak away glory from God because you are precious to your heavenly Father. I hope that you know that. But both we are his children and his agents, his ambassadors of peace, in a world that only wants to be at war. Take your stand. Be firm in everything that we do. Be active in your Christianity. Stand firm, he again tells us. Be a soldier with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert always. Keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Pray also for me. That whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We'll bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, please unpack with us through the power of your spirit this morning both your word and our place in your word, so that as we take up your mission to know Christ and to make Christ known, we may do so with boldness, we may do so with your strength, we may do so with your integrity, and we may do so with your love, calling others to the free pardon of sin, to being released from shame and being convicted for the good of our neighbors. Help us now. 
to see you in spite of all the problems, to focus on you, the God who is our solution. So use now this time and your word in the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now, what is the nature of the church? Paul has used basically the entire book of Ephesians to talk about the church and more importantly, the, the, the value of the people that make up the church. First of all, the church, the word ecclesia, means a gathering of believers, a place of refuge. Uh, not giving up the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more so as, haven't I preached on that? All the more so as you see the day approaching. In other words, don't give up joining together. The church is called to be a people with a mission of rescue. Again, we're not called to be entertained. We're not called to be sit, sitting idly on the sideline. We are called to the fight. We're called to take a stand against a world that doesn't want to hear about Christ, who doesn't want to hear about its own creator, who doesn't want to hear about spiritual accountability, who doesn't want to hear that what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. Right now we actually saw a three-day revival happening in a Methodist theological seminary because they decided to take a stand against the stuff outside of this world coming into the church. Take a stand. We're to be a people of contrast against this world. The Christian was countercultural before the 70s was cool. What is the purpose of the church? The spreading of hope, peace, joy, and love. What does the world stand for? Hatred, greed, bitterness, and war. We are counter to the world in which we live, always called to be so. And we are also called to be an army, not on the defensive inside a fortress, but on the offensive. The equipment of a, of a Christian are... Again, we hold to these things enumerated by Paul, the belt of truth, which holds everything together in place and at the ready. There is righteousness, the way that we are called to live, be holy just as I am holy, God tells us, which protects the heart. There is the gospel, which compels us into action and increases our endurance. We're going to see all that laid out in just a moment. There is also faith, which protects not only yourself, but others surrounding you. Salvation, which of course uh, protects the, the battlefield of the mind. The word of God, which presses on the attack. It's the offensive weapon alongside the agape love that we are called to demonstrate. And of course, prayer, which engages the supply line of the army. As Napoleon used to observe, as Napoleon used to observe, the army stands or the army rather marches on its stomach. Your supply line is very, very, very important. So what is our mission? Who are we? I want you to take notice of this scripture. This is what Jesus says to define the way the church is supposed to operate because he piggybacks on what Simon Peter says. When Peter preaches, or rather when Peter, when he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon this confession, I will build my church. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And what? What? Altogether now, the gates of... No, the gates will not overcome it. Well, yes, what you said. But gates are defensive. They're not offensive. It's not us that's supposed to be sheltering in the fortress, cowering in fear. It's the enemy because he knows he's defeated. He knows his time is enumerated. In fact, it's often said when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And win the battle because he knows he's done. The church is not supposed to be cowering in fear. We're supposed to put him in his place and charge over his forces and rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatching them in pity from sin in the grave, charging into his fortress and bringing the captive out. That's the image that Jesus himself is setting up for us. So the goals of the enemy are to incite this creation to rebellion to promote hatred, violence, and injustice, to enslave creation out of God's will and into His, to condemn many, as many as are humanly possible, uh, well, devilly possible, I guess, to rob God of His glory by, by basically putting a fallen creation in His faith and, face and saying, you're not perfect after all, and to be worshipped Himself. And his strategies are very simple. They've been that way since the very beginning. We've talked about them from Genesis chapter 1. Number 1, spread down in ignorance. Social media, I hate to say it, is a prime example. Because we get so overwhelmed with so many opinions from so many different directions in so many conflicting areas of expertise, quote unquote, that we have no idea what's truth and what's fiction. In fact, I remember the Babylon Bee back last year actually saying we were having trouble making things up for satire's sake because truth right now is so strange. It's funnier than anything we could come up with. Redefine truth. Another example. Did God really say this? Did God really say you will surely die? Turn the objective into subjective. If I claim, if my own personal truth is that I can leap from this pulpit and suddenly fly away, then that's the, pr- the truth that the, earth, the world right now is trying to promote instead of what is objective, what is real, what is grounded. Increase synchronism, that's the phrase, in case you are wondering, that's the $40 word for it's not important what you believe, but that you believe something. When in fact the word of God tells us from the voice of Jesus himself, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's only one way and the world's right now trying to shove down our throat that no, there's more than one way. But I've got news for them. When you come before the throne and Jesus says what way did you pick and it's not him, what's his reaction going to be? So unbelievers among the believers pepper doubt among the people of God so that when the time comes There will be dissension, there will be conflict, there will be pain where there should be joy, peace, and prosperity. Immobilize others through shame. Here's a difference that I really want you to write down in your notes. There's a difference between shame and conviction. Shame is the work of the enemy trying to immobilize the believer. 
Shame is him reminding you of your past with the caveat that God can never forgive this, or God will never approve of that, or God will never smile upon you because of something in your past. Conviction is a tool of the Savior. Conviction says, yeah, you messed up, but there's a way that we can learn through this. Yes, there was sin, but there is also forgiveness. There is also hope. Yes, there is hell, but there is also a Savior. Conviction doesn't paralyze, it compels, and it actually strengthens. Another one of his tactics is to pressure the righteous into tolerating that which is not righteous. To pressure the world itself into total and abject unrighteousness. And to devalue the name and the image of God. You are not a person. You are a machine. You are an accident of organic chemistry. You are nothing more than a collection of neurons firing in sequence. You are a cosmic accident. That is what we're trying to be fed. That human life has no intrinsic sacred value to it. When quite the opposite is true. The goals of God as proclaimed by scripture. On the other hand are reconciliation to a rebellious creation. Paul himself calls us the ambassadors of reconciliation. He called himself that just a couple of seconds ago. Where we are pleading on behalf of Christ. It's the proclamation of justice, mercy, and love. The goal of God is the redemption of those that are a slave to sin, and he paid for that freedom. He paid the price. He ransomed you. The salvation of the spiritually dead, which we all at one time were, and the adoption of heirs to the kingdom of God. Once you are in Christ... You are a co-heir with Christ. You are not just a citizen in heaven, even though that's impressive in and of itself. But you are also a prince or a princess of the kingdom of heaven. Do you know the value that God places on your life? That you are not just a cog in the machine. You are not just a member of the church. But you are a son or daughter of the most high God. And he loves you with a fierce and a passionate love. So the nature of the church, we've already gone over. Let's talk now about the armor itself. So we're going to start out by looking at the first three pieces, and we'll follow up the rest in the next service. But Paul, being from Tarsus, was a Roman citizen. So he's using an imagery that everybody on earth at this point in time in his own reflection is going to be able to understand because you can't throw a rock without seeing a Roman centurion somewhere. And the first thing that he calls out, which is probably the most important part of a centurion's kit, is the belt. And he identifies the belt of a Christian's armor as the belt of truth. Now, belts are interesting. We think of them almost as we do underwear as an accessory, but the truth of the matter is when we're talking about armor, it's the belt that holds everything together. It's the belt that creates the soldier by holding everything in place. Not only that, but keeping it somewhere that's at the ready for you. A soldier's most precious possession in Roman terms was was his short sword. 
and it had to be in a place where he could reach it quickly in an, in an urgent situation. So anything, so it held things together and it also gave the soldier access to his most urgent and immediate equipment, in which case is the truth of the Word of God for us. We'll get on to that later. It also provides unity through security. If there's one thing a soldier does not want to have happen, it's part of his armor to suddenly fall off in the middle of a conflict. So in this world, we're finding a battle right now between objective and subjective truth. A two-pronged battle in which we're called to win both years. The objective truth, again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is the truth of the Scripture. Who is God? Who are we to God? And then there's the subjective, there are the lived-out truth. Our conduct, our conversation, and our character. If we believe in God, then yes, we should act a certain way. We should be a certain kind of person. We should, through our conduct, conversation, and character, reflect who God is before others. Uh, in ancient, one of the truths that we really need to realize is that the person that you worship is the being that you grow more and more like. Let me say that again. The person that you worship is the being that you grow more and more like or to resemble. When people in another culture created an idol, they basically took their own view of what a god should be and sculpted it into reality and then strove to be like that idea that they had themselves. God calls us to be something different. Be holy just as I am holy. Be conformed, not to the way of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, be conformed to who Christ is. The longer you are a Christian, the more you should resemble Christ. So it's the truth, the belt of truth that we're talking about is the objective truth of Scripture, and it's the subjective truth that we live out through our conduct, our word choices, the way that we speak and what we speak, excuse me, our conduct rather, the way that we live, our conversation, the way we speak, and of course our character, which is the person that we are when no one's looking. Keep reminding God's people, Paul is talking to this young pastor in Timothy. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words, for it is of no value. It only ruins those who listen. Do your best, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the what? Bless you, the word of truth. Do we accept God's word as true? Do we give the truth of God the authority that it deserves? Or is it just a passing piece of, of, of trivia? Do we allow it to transform us and to hold our faith together? Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Please write this down in the flyleaf of your Bible, 2 Timothy 2.17. For those who misuse truth, for those who try to take the objective truth and twist it to match their own subjective wants and likes, the Bible tells us that their teaching will spread through the church like gangrene. In a more modern term, we would call that their, their teaching or their heresy will spread like a cancer. And it will choke off and it will kill off part of the body of Christ. So the truth as we handle it is important because it holds the whole thing together. Now let's focus on the breastplate of righteousness. 
what is righteousness? Righteousness is when we take for granted that God means what he says when he says, be holy just as I am holy. God is characterized by two things. Number one is his power. Omnipresent, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving. But he's also known for his, what we would call his faithfulness. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. In fact, we serve a God who delights in the making and keeping of promises to his children that he loves. The word of God, as is said in scripture, will never fail. So, how we live out that righteousness, how we live out that core of who we've called to be, how we live out the image of God is important before others. It also protects us. First of all, there's, there's, and I've already preached about this, our emotional well-being. When are we most likely to be tempted? When we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're ashamed, when we're afraid, when we're lonely, and when we're tired. And again, that's in our previous couple of messages. But where the enemy really looks to strike to find a chink in our breastplate so that we will end up losing our righteousness before others are more often than not times when we are hungry, when we are angry, when we're ashamed, when we're afraid, when we're lonely, or when we're tired. That's when we are emotionally vulnerable and he is always ready to strike. So recognizing that is part of your armor. Recognizing when the enemy is on the prowl is part of what protects us. There's also making it a habit to live out the virtues of the Christian life. Our humility, which is our denial of the self in favor of the other. Our generosity, which is an outpouring of our compassion, even when they don't deserve it. Or when in our minds they don't deserve it, knowing that our neighbor is made in God's image. The agape love, the pure love that Christ calls us to bear, the self-sacrificing love. There are over 12 versions of love taught in the Bible. Not all love is love. Even in the Greek times, they knew that there were different variations, various tinges, various intensities, various definitions of love. The Hebrew language is the same way. But the love of God, the love that God expects of us, he calls the agapeo, or the actively, the agape love, which is a self-denying self-sacrificing love, and that's part of our armor. There's our faithfulness or our follow-through. If you promise something, then you carry that something out. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And there's also, of course, righteousness itself, which is living out our moral character, our moral center. Having a code through the Word of God and sticking to it. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to make new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a, that's a tough challenge. That's a really tough challenge, but thanks be to God through the indwelling presence of His own Spirit. He has given us the ability to do just that. If we rely on him and humble ourselves before him, we can be a true, purified re, uh, reflection of his love. There's also this phrase that I want to highlight to you. 
being shod, or rather wearing the shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now this is often a part of the Romans' armor that we take for granted as, as something that's unimportant, like the belt. But the ancient Jewish historian uh, Josephus, he actually gives this as Rome's secret weapon. When Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, Josephus, who was a Jewish general, taken captive and turned historian by Tacitus, he actually said that what the Romans had going for them was their footwear. Because it was so well made, it was so comfortable, that it was able to ensure through both a thick sole, through the cleats, and through a comfortable set of straps, that the soldiers were able to march farther, longer, and faster. And because they're able to march farther, longer, and faster, they can get there before the enemy can even put an army together. This is how they were prepared and able to go into action. So shoes do an awful lot for the soldier. Number one, because they're comfortable, they enable speed. How many of you would like to go running in a, in a pair of dress shoes? It would not be wise. I have seen a lady once try to run in high heels. I will spare you how that story turned out. But the way that you prepare your footwear is important. The soles and the sides, they protect, especially since in Romans' kit they had uh, plates of armor uh, across the straps. They, this also increases endurance. So that when hardship comes, the gospel sustains. It keeps them strong as they move forward, meaning that they can cover more ground than they could otherwise. And the cleats also, please write this down. It, they provide stability on rough terrain. Many a time it has been, as you know, that I, I, I have a ministry to the sick and the dying. And many a time it's been that someone who's undergoing a severe cancer treatment or someone who's just got a poor diagnosis or someone that doesn't know if they're going to take their next breath will thank God because they've got their assurance that they know where they're going when that last breath is drawn. More than once I've heard the question, Pastor, I just don't know what other people do without him. I don't know what other people do without him. The gospel provides stability through all the rough terrain of this life because we know through the gospel where we're going and who holds us in his hand. But as a church, as we all come together to form one body, the central truth is that we can do more together. We can, move, we can move faster. We can go farther. And we can do so in the safety of the knowledge of who guides us. The cause of the gospel. This is Paul's message to us. How we practically apply what we learn here, what we learn in Sunday school, what we learn on Sunday nights, what we learn on Wednesday nights. How do you put the Word of God into your life matters because it inevitably determines how well you can conquer when the time comes. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually comments on his own work. For it is Christ's love that compels us. 
The word here in the Greek for compel has a dual meaning, and it doesn't really translate well into English. Uh, in some of your translations, it'll say it constrains us or it controls us, and that's not a good translation. The word used actually means it has a dual meaning. The image is a leaf that falls into a fast-moving stream. And what it signifies is that not only does that stream provide power in motion, but it also provides direction. So the love of Christ gives us energy, and the love of Christ gives us direction is what he's telling us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In another passage of scripture, he simplifies it by saying, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. The sinful person that was me, the fallen, fickle, feeble, finite, and frustrating person that was me, was set on the cross just as Christ was. He was condemned to death and he died. So the person that I am today is different. The person that I am today has been made holy. The person that I am today has been redeemed. The person that I am today does not have the chains of sins shackled around him because Christ paid the price so that it was completed and all those chains fell away. We note we don't arise the same person. That person is dead. The new has come. From now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. The creation was in a rebellion against the creator. And unlike any other God in any other religion on the face of this planet, God himself sent himself as a sacrifice to himself to free you from hell. He paid the price. Out of his love for you, knowing that we couldn't work our way into heaven, he gave you the access and the invitation to become a part of heaven. A son and a daughter of, the, of God himself. He paid the price. And now he calls us as his children, as Christians, to make more Christians. To take that same message of reconciliation and to give it to a world that doesn't want to hear it knowing that some of them will receive it. And like a seed planted in the ground, they will come. And more and more names will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and more and more people will be changed. And the roster of people that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ will grow in heaven. Do we feel that conviction anymore? Do we feel the urgency for wanting our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our family to be in heaven with us when that day comes? Do we feel the same intensity that Paul felt all those years ago when he, through the whip of a Roman soldier, kept preaching, there is a God to save. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Underline that, not counting people's sins against them because they had already been forgiven. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Know 
Christ and make Christ known. This is not just a slogan. This is not just a mission statement. This is the goal of us all. And as we continue to look at the equipment and the provision that God himself has provided us to carry out that mission successfully and victoriously, let us rededicate ourselves to the purpose for which we are called. Not just to enjoy the blessings of salvation, but to keep moving forward, keep correcting. When we slip up, and we all do, to keep moving. If we get tripped up, we stand up, we get a hand from our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we keep on going. Sometimes it takes a stumble before you really get your second wind and you run. Let us put on the full armor of God. Let us understand precisely why it is there. And let us use it for the purpose that it was given to us. To reach a world that desperately needs the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. And as our service of the word concludes, and as the musicians come forward to our, for our time of invitation, if there is anything on any heart, be it a call to a new place to be a minister, a call to be a member having found a home, or the call of salvation to know Christ in a personal relationship which he offers us or just a special prayer need on any heart, a special burden, whatever it is, as we now come to this time, while the musicians sing, don't stay in your pew. Come down the aisle. Receive the blessings of God, knowing that that's what he wants for you. Not shame and guilt, but blessing and home. And all God's people said. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.